Scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 through 18. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, every time we come to your word, uh, we need to come acknowledging that this is revelation from you, and so we expect you to say things to us that would not make sense apart from you revealing it, things that we couldn't figure out on our own. And so we pray for your help now and the work of your spirit through your word that we would understand and see what you are saying to us, that we would see Jesus with greater clarity, that we would see what you are calling us to and the goodness of it, and that you would help us to have wisdom. And so would you do all this and more than we would even know to ask you, uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were with us uh, last week, we finished up the book of Daniel, and one of the themes that we considered in that last sermon, but really a theme 
kind of throughout the whole of Daniel is that the life of faith in the God of the Bible is a long defeat that ends in ultimate victory. If we only were to consider this world, the here and now, and this life, it looks like fighting a long defeat. This is, after all, the life of Jesus. If there was no resurrection and we were just thinking in this world only terms, Jesus' life was one of a long defeat ending in his tragic death at the hands of unjust and corrupt politicians and leaders. It is only in light of the resurrection of the Son of God that such a defeat is seen to be the ultimate victory. And in this season of Lent, as we walk with Jesus toward the cross, toward Good Friday, as we walk this path of long defeat, defeat that is going to end in the victory of resurrection life, we're going to look at uh, this week and two weeks from now these passages from 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5. And today we're just going to focus on verses 7 through 15, but I wanted you to see the wider context of, of what's going on here. And, and this is why we're doing this. Embracing this life of following Jesus and fighting this long defeat is incredibly hard. And it clashes with so much of what the world tells us life should be like. And even intuitively, what we think life with God should probably look like and feel like. I mean, right, if God is good, and if God is powerful, and if God can heal, and if God loves us, and he's against evil and suffering, then shouldn't that mean that our lives are free from all of these things? New York Times article about the prosperity gospel, historian Kate Bowler uh, writes this, one of the prosperity gospel's greatest triumphs is popularization of the term blessed. Over the last 10 years, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. Drivers can choose between the standard mass-produced Jesus is Lord novelty license plate or blessed for $16.99 in a tasteful aluminum. When America's Next Top Model star took off his shirt, audiences saw the word blessed tattooed above his bulging pectorals. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It is the humble brag of the stars. Hashtag blessed is the only caption suitable for viral images of alpine vacations and family yachting in barely their bikinis. It says, I totally get it. I'm down to earth enough to know this is crazy. But it also says, God gave this to me. Adorable shrug. Don't blame me. I'm blessed. Here's the question I think that's at the heart of this text in 2 Corinthians 4. What does God's glory and power look like in a person's life? How is God's glory and power shown or manifested in a person's life? And Paul's surprising answer is weakness. God's glory and power is seen through weakness, through what looks like defeat and failure and frailty. 
God's glory and power is revealed and shown as the pattern of Christ's life takes shape in us, which looks like a cross, the pattern of death and resurrection. And this, Paul says, this pattern God uses to make himself known and to bring others to know and experience his grace. I I invite you to have the text in front of you. I want us to look at this together and think about what Paul is saying to us, what God's word is saying to us. We're going to think about this in two sections. So first, verses 7 through 12, where Paul states this surprising and even paradoxical principle that is precisely through weakness that God's power and glory is on display. And then second, in verses 13 through 15, where, he, where Paul explains why it is that he still clings to God in faith and what God is doing through all of this. So first, the, the surprising and paradoxical, paradoxical principle. Where does this question even come from about glory and power? You know, why is Paul talking about this here? If you, if you think about Paul's life and what he's written previously in this letter, the implicit question that Paul is seeking to answer, I think, becomes really clear. So Paul, you may remember, he is converted in Acts chapter 9 when he meets the resurrected and glorious Jesus on the road to Damascus. This glorious light shines from heaven around him, and Jesus speaks to Paul, and he calls Paul to himself, and ultimately that Paul would take this glorious gospel to the world. And Paul's ministry, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, is a manifestation of that glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Back in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has written extensively about how glorious this gospel is. So he says, for example, it is greater than the glory of the old covenant under Moses. Even though that glory was so great, he says, that when Moses came down from the mountain, the Israelites couldn't look at his face because he was shining and reflecting the glory of God from being in God's presence. Paul says his ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, the outpouring of the Spirit because of Jesus' death and resurrection, it exceeds it in glory. In fact, it so far exceeds it that it makes the old covenant look like it doesn't even have any glory. That's how much greater it is. But here's the problem. The Corinthians look at Paul and they say, really? Paul, you're telling us that you've experienced the revelation of God's glory and your life and ministry is a manifestation of God's glory? Paul, your life does not look glorious. Your life doesn't look blessed. Your life doesn't look like power. It looks like failure. It looks like weakness. Paul didn't have bulging pectorals or chiseled abs. He didn't look impressive. And what has happened in Corinth is leading up to this writing of this letter, false teachers have come in and have begun preaching a gospel that really fit with what the Corinthians wanted to hear. These teachers came in and they brought impressive letters of recommendation and they weren't afraid to show off their rhetorical skill and they boasted in their Jewish heritage and in their spiritual experiences and they raised questions about the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. 
After all, Paul doesn't use rhetorical flair, and Paul doesn't have impressive letters of recommendation. And outwardly speaking, you have to imagine what Paul must have looked like, given that he has been beaten with rods and been lashed with whips. In chapter 11, Paul tells us many of the things that have happened to him. He's, he's been imprisoned many times. He has been often near death. He's been beaten with stones. He's been shipwrecked three times. He faces hunger and thirst. He often doesn't get enough sleep. He faces the anxiety of ministry and care for the churches. He goes around being exposed to the elements. Paul looks a lot more like a homeless person who's been living on the streets for years than he looks like most of us in here today. This man looks beat up, bruised, broken. He doesn't look like glory. He doesn't look like power. He looks weak, and he's rejected often by his own people and the Gentiles, which means everybody. He looks like a failure. He looks like a fool. But that's the point. Verse 7, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure that he's talking about is the glorious gospel revealed in Christ. What, what he's been writing about in this letter and what he's most previously just said in, in uh, verse 6 of chapter 4. The glorious good news with all of God's power of new creation and resurrection life, Paul says, is in jars of clay. Which is to say, everyday, common, easily broken, and thrown away vessels. Paul. In our context, right, you might think, I don't know, red solo cups or something like that. Like, you want to have some people over, but you really don't like doing dishes, let's just get out the red solo cups and afterwards we're going to just toss them away. Why does God put his powerful and glorious gospel on display through something like that? Here's why Paul says, to show where the power is coming from. Here's God's purpose, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the principle here, the, the surprising paradoxical principle that God's glory and God's power isn't on display in how successful or accomplished or powerful or able or awesome someone may be, but rather in how weak and fragile and broken and needy they are. And this is just as hard for us to receive as it was for the Corinthians. Here's how one scholar described the culture of Corinth. And just, like, does this not sound familiar? Greco-Roman society stressed, one, a rugged individualism that valued self-sufficiency. Two, Wealth as the key to status within society. Three, a self-display of one's accomplishments and possessions in order to win praise from others. Look at my grades. Look at where I go to school. Look at where I work or look at my house or my car or my vacations. Four, 
a competition for honor that naturally flowed into boasting. Five, pride in one's neighborhood as a reflection of one's social location. These values combined to create a populace for which self-esteem was the goal and the result was self-gratification. Everything about the self. And because of this, wealth was worshipped and central to life because with wealth came all of these other significant markers of your social advancement in your job, in your community, in your religion, and so on. And religion in Corinth Widely practiced, it had little to do with doctrine, but really with what worked, what was useful to you right now. Religious participation was valuable to the extent that it promised or it led to health and wealth in this life and a good social standing. A religion was viewed as valuable in the culture to the extent that it displayed the deity's power, which was seen by way of cultural, physical, and economic power of the deity's followers. Why would you be religious in ancient Corinth? Well, because it was practical, because it kept suffering from you, because it could advance you in some way. And so some in the Corinthian church are rejecting Paul and his apostleship because of his sufferings. But for Paul, this is tantamount to rejecting the gospel itself because his ministry and his life is an embodiment of the gospel. Look at verses 10 and 12, where Paul explains that the glory and the power manifested in his life is none other than the glory and the power of the gospel. It is cruciform glory and cruciform power, meaning it is cross-shaped. It follows the pattern of Jesus. He says he is, verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And if you want, like, what, is, what does that look like, Paul? What is the concrete picture of that? He tells us in verses 8 and 9 what this dynamic of Jesus' death and resurrection, what it looks like. He says, we are afflicted in every way. That's the death part, but we are not crushed. The resurrection power sustaining him. He says, we are perplexed, death, but kept from ultimate despair, resurrection power sustaining. We are, verse 9, we're persecuted, death, but we're not forsaken and abandoned, resurrection We are like a boxer receiving blow after blow in the ring, struck down, death, but not destroyed, resurrection. You see, what does cruciform glory and power look like? It looks like suffering, affliction, confusion, rejection, hardship. It doesn't look like miraculous deliverance. It doesn't look like change of circumstances, but rather the resurrection power is manifested when in the midst of suffering, you endure. It's the power that keeps you, the power that doesn't allow you to ultimately be crushed, ultimately despair, ultimately be destroyed. It's the power that holds you up and that gives you resilience. And this dynamic at at work in Paul's life, verse 12, he says, 
it results in life for others. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And this is really what leads into the second portion of the text, verses 13 and 15 through 15, and, and why it is that Paul continues to hold on to God in faith, why he continues to trust God. Verse 13, he writes, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. He's quoting in verse 13 here from Psalm 116. And when a biblical author quotes from another part of the Bible, it's not just like a random, like, grabbing a verse that they really liked, but it's like a hyperlink that's meant to take you to that other passage and to see the wider context of what's going on. Psalm 116 is a testimony. It's a testimony of a man who entrusted himself to God in the midst of great suffering and affliction. Listen to how the psalm starts. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. And the part that Paul is quoting is when the psalmist says, in the midst of all of this that was going on, all of the suffering and all of the affliction, I believed. I held on to God. And I think there's at least two things that Paul is trying to show us as he, as he refers to this psalm. The first is that suffering is not anything new. Paul's reminding us those who love God often face suffering and hardship and affliction and trial. This is not new. The Old Testament is filled with countless examples of this. I mean, it's almost hard to think of a prominent Old Testament figure that did not go through some kind of affliction or trial or suffering, right? You could think of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the nation of Israel itself and King David and the prophets and Job and Daniel and the exiles. All had their share of suffering. And the New Testament is filled with statements that would lead us to expect suffering and difficult. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. John 16.33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not new, Paul says. But also, Psalm 116 is one example of just many in the Bible where we have a testimony. We have the experience of someone's life that has gone through sufferings and trials and afflictions that led to ultimate rescue and deliverance. And all of this has been used to bring other people to know and experience God's grace and to overflow with thanksgiving to God. Psalm 116 is one of those psalms among many that would have been prayed and sung 
and rehearsed and become one of those parts of God's word that gave life and hope to others. And this is, after all, the pattern of Jesus' life, right? Jesus, who was not only afflicted, but also crushed under the weight of our sin. He who was persecuted, but also forsaken by God. He who faced the ultimate suffering for us on the cross and for our sins, but was raised from the dead that we might be restored in union with God, that we might be forgiven, that we might overflow with praise for God's loving faithfulness. And this is why Paul has confidence, and this is why Paul has hope to keep going, because verse 14, he knows that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise him also, along with all other believers, and bring us into God's presence. And because this gospel, this good news, has so penetrated Paul's heart and his imagination, he understands what God is up to in the midst of his sufferings and his hardships. Paul says, I go through all of this for your sake, verse 15, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's saying, I get what God is doing in my life. And therefore, my weaknesses and my sufferings, I cling to him in the midst of those, and I continue to proclaim the good news. Jesus, in weakness, gave himself for me. And now, by his power, I give myself for others, that they might see in me the cruciform power and the cruciform glory of God, and that it would lead to more and more people knowing God and knowing his grace and his power in their life. Just let's think about our lives for a moment. Think about your life and consider your weaknesses. Consider your struggles, your failures, your your hardships, the brokenness Each of us have places in our lives where our lives feel hard and broken and weak. It might be in your marriage. It might be in singleness. It might be struggles, right, with with kids and with parenting. Or it might be that you can't have kids It might be struggles from your past, whether that's that's family brokenness or other kinds of things that have happened in your past. It might be struggles with sicknesses and disease and chronic pain or mental health. It might be struggles in, in your career and just daily life that it's just not working out the way that you thought that it would. Whatever it is, as as we follow Jesus in those places, as we look to the Lord for strength and grace and help to endure, not only do we find that he sustains us, but that often it is through those very weaknesses that we are able to minister and bring comfort to others. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, at the beginning of this letter. He writes of the God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort 
with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right? Think about what he's saying. You and I, as we look to God in our afflictions and we find God comforting us and helping us, then we become people who are equipped to extend that comfort to others who may be in a situation that's similar to ours or it might be different. And that we receive comfort and strength as we hear and see God comforting and strengthening and sustaining someone else. Some of you are probably familiar uh, with the name Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she had a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic. She dove into the water in the Chesapeake Bay in an area that was very shallow and she didn't know it and she dove in and she broke her neck and she was a quadriplegic, paralyzed, wheelchair for the rest of her life. After her accident, she was extremely depressed and suicidal and she would have taken her own life if she would have been physically able to do so. But it was friends who visited her in her hospital and loved her and cared for her and opened the scriptures with her. And she came to deeply know the hope of the gospel, of the grace and the love of Jesus and of his power to sustain her and to keep her and to help her endure her quadriplegia with joy and this has led, if, if you know of her story or her ministry, to countless others coming to know the grace of God and her testimony. Years ago, she did an interview on Larry King Live. And at one point, Larry has the boldness to ask her, how do you know your faith isn't a crutch? And it's just you doing all of these things. And she says... It's not me. If you could be a fly on my wall on any given morning, or if you could live in my skin for just a few days with quadriplegia, you would see that it can ultimately decimate you. It just lays you flat. You come undone. You have no resources. And sometimes I think that my affliction is like a sheepdog snapping at my heels, making me run to the cross of Jesus Christ for help where I just have nowhere else to go. She describes in that interview what enduring grace looks like. And, and she says, the weaker I became, the harder I had to lean on him, and the stronger I discovered him to be. 37 years later, I'm not spiritually strong. I'm not a veteran at this thing. I'm not a professional quadriplegic. I get up in the morning and many times I hear my friend who's coming to the door and I know she's going to come in my bedroom any minute and she's going to get me up and she's going to get me dressed and she's going to comb my hair and brush my teeth and blow my nose because I can't do any of those things. And there are times when my eyes are closed and I'm thinking, God, I have no strength for this. I can't face this. I have no resources for this. But you do. You have strength. You have resources. 
that is cruciform glory and cruciform power. And that is what Paul is trying to show us in this passage. Our calling, don't mishear me, our calling is not to look for suffering. The Bible never calls us to look for suffering or glory in suffering as if suffering was somehow a good thing in and of itself. It's not. But our calling is to receive and rest upon Jesus in the midst of whatever our weaknesses and our sufferings may be and to rely on his resurrection power to sustain us and to keep us and to help us endure as we are conformed to his image and as the pattern of his life begins to take shape in our own lives and all of this that the glory and the power of Jesus might be on display in our lives and that it might lead to other people coming to know of his grace and his power in their life leading to overflowing thanksgiving and praise to God.